Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 66, Venice, Part 3. I'd like to start this episode by answering a couple of questions from a listener that will help us focus on an aspect of the whole Venice digression. The listener is Rodney N., who has been a Patreon supporter for some time now and, due to my own fault, has not been mentioned in the thank you list. This is by no means due to Patreon itself, which is wonderful and I love it. Rodney had a load of good questions and I have them stored away for a questions episode. So if anyone else wants to get some in, go ahead and do so. So Rodney's questions are the following. 1. Why did the commune leaders at some point choose to impose a system of electing a doge instead of experiencing the kind of feudal system of government that dominated most of Europe outside of northern Italy? This question pertains to the peculiarity of Venice and also the reason I felt it deserved some more attention. To answer this question, we have to focus on timing a little. We mentioned that Venice elected its first doges at the beginning of the 8th century, and they never really called themselves a commune, but a republic, although the limitations on the power of the doge that really ushered in the republican era didn't really come around until the mid-12th century. The election of the Doge started to try and overcome the continuous factional fighting among the inhabitants of the various areas in and around the lagoon. On the other hand, the communal institutions, in particular the consuls in northern Italy, didn't start to appear until the late 11th century. Before that, northern Italy actually did experience feudalism, which first existed alongside the communes and in time was absorbed into them. So, why didn't feudalism catch on in Venice? Well, two words. Land and trade. If you were a noble and part of the feudal system, you had three main jobs to do. One, own land. Two, make babies. 3. Chop people up with your sword. Land was the very basis of the feudal system. The head of the pyramid, usually a king, had a kingdom he divided up among his vassals, dukes or barons or marquis or whatever, who in turn would then divide their big bit of land into smaller bits of land and so on all the way down to the knights. As soon as you could more or less walk, they would stick a horse under your bum and a sword in your hand. Hopefully not the opposite. One thing a self-respecting nobleman definitely did not do in any way is get involved in that nasty, icky business of trade. It was not cricket, you know. Tut-tut, bad show, old bean. Venice had very little land to go around. When in the 9th century, for example, they started to develop the Rialto area, 
They would have to expand the land by driving huge wooden trunks into the swamp and muck to make supports to then build on. So a system of government based on land wasn't going to work. In Venice, power could be found in cold hard cash, and cold hard cash could be found in trade. Indeed, while a feudal military leader would not dream of getting involved in commerce, anyone who was anyone in Venice, including the great military leaders, would dabble in trade. Now, if there is one thing about trade, is that it requires a greater level of cooperation and stability. It's a bit hard to trade with a guy if you've just stuck your sword through him. War is not good for business. Better, you being at war is not good for business. Other people's wars, as we'll see, for example, with the Crusades, are really good for business. So, to summarize the answer, the Venetians started to elect dodges to overcome fighting among the factions, but never developed a feudal system due to the lack of land and consequently a knack for trade. The other question is, why in Venice did the system of limited democracy not lead over time to steady, gradual expansion of who may cast votes, as happened, albeit centuries later, in the UK, British colonies and, I think, the Netherlands? My sense is that the rule of the Dodges became over time less and less responsive to the wishes of the electorate, and, or, to those of the general public, which I know was a much larger group than those with the right to vote. Well, if there is one thing about power, it's, once you have it, you'll probably want to hold on to it. We mustn't imagine Venice as an illuminated, liberal, modern democracy. It was basically an oligarchy, with a council that could, in a certain sense, limit the power of the Dodge, but still with a system of power in the hands of the few. Rodney's correct in saying that, in time, the system of power grew distant from the people. For example, an early form of assembly, the Arengo, would be convened to elect a Dodge and make crucial decisions, such as going to war. In time, this assembly was called upon less and less, also because as the city grew, it would have been almost impossible to control such an assembly or even get everyone into a single area. There is some degree of democracy in a system based on trade, but mainly on the entry level. You could become part of the elite with some clever and lucky commercial decisions, but you could also lose everything overnight due to a storm or pirate attack. When you reached a certain level, however, the risk was less, as you could hedge your investments. If a shipment of the great families such as the Partecipazzi, the Orsoleo, Candiano, or the Morosini or Caloprini was lost at sea, they would most likely have another sailing just round the corner or in another port in the world, or home in Venice. Therefore, as is the case today also, the rich 
generally just got richer and more secure in their wealth and thus had a stronger hold on power. So thanks very much to Rodney for allowing us this focus. He and I are thinking of a Why Stuff Happened episode to get deeper into the reasons behind some of the events we have spoken of. For now, let's pick up where we left with our Venetians. We left off with a series of rather hesitant dodges being elected and then running off to monasteries. The last we spoke of was Doge Vitale Candiano, who reigned from 978 all the way to 979, a whole year. Finally, after Vitale, a Doge came along that was willing to stick around a little bit longer, Tribuno Memmo. However, the length of his reign did not bring stability. Indeed, it is in his time that the division between the pro-Holy Roman Empire and the pro-Byzantine Empire really started to show. As we mentioned way back in episode 26 when we talked about Holy Roman Emperor Otto II. The Venetian family that sided with him were the Caloprini, while the pro-Byzantine family were the Morosini. The pro-Otto Caloprini were not at all happy with the situation and one of their number, Stefano, went out and met Emperor Otto to try and convince him to attack Venice, install them in power and then they would submit Venice to him. When the Venetians found out about this, they were less than pleased. They attacked the Caloprini houses and took their families as hostages. Luckily, the whole explosive situation was diffused by the death of Stefano Caloprini, closely followed by the sudden and unexpected death of Emperor Otto II himself in 982. This left an internal family feud between his mother, Adelaide of Italy, who continued to push for an attack on Venice, and his Byzantine widow, Theophany, who was opposed. The mother-in-law did not get her way, but she did manage to secure an amnesty for the Caloprini family so that they could return to Venice. Which may seem like a good thing, but in truth, it was not so good because once they had returned to Venice, two prominent members of the family were assassinated in 991. At this point, the Doge, Tribuno Memmo, was blamed and pressured into abdicating. As the 10th century drew to a close, Venice was sick. It had been torn by internal strife and infighting, plagued by piracy and squashed between the two great empires. It needed treatment and the doctor came along just at the right time in the form of Pietro Orsoleo II in 991. He would go down in history as a great statesman, military leader and an accomplished diplomat. He was elected at the young age of 30, so time was also on his side. However, as in the case of many rulers in history, perhaps he lived too long. At the start it seemed that some sort of happy vibe went through the city 
with the divisions very quickly disappearing. Orsoleo managed to negotiate a commercial agreement with the new Western Emperor, Otto III, and quite soon Venetian ships could be seen sailing up and down the rivers and canals of northern Italy, and goods from Venetian trade reached as far as southern Germany. He confirmed and extended the agreements with Byzantium as well, and so, from being squashed between two empires, Venice now found herself taking advantage once again of her middle ground position. The Doge even went so far as to reach an agreement with the Muslims, which helped ease up the piracy situation and opened up whole new markets, starting from the Sicilian ports. The only big issue remaining in this happy picture was the piracy situation in Dalmatia, along the modern-day coastline of Slovenia and Croatia. The last big Venetian expedition to deal with the problem had been over 100 years previously and had ended in disaster in 887. Now, in 998, as the new millennium loomed, Pietro Orsoleo II set up another fleet. It was a triumph. They met little or no resistance, with the enemy melting away until they reached Split, Spalato, where they found the first ineffective resistance. The only serious fighting done on the whole campaign was the siege of Lastovo. Doge Pietro could in any case return to Venice in triumph. He hadn't actually conquered any lands that wouldn't be in the city's interest for a while, but they did set up commercial presences in every city and the pirate threat had been greatly reduced. Pietro Soler II had earned every right to call himself Dux Veneticorum et Dalmaticorum, Doge of the Venetians and Dalmatians. People, not dogs, obviously. He was so awesome that it was possibly in this period, around the year 1000, that the whole Sposalizio del Mare, the marriage of the sea ceremony, may have started up, or at least been consolidated. A solemn procession of boats would go out to the sea via the Lido port, with the Doge's ship leading. A prayer was offered that, for us and all who sail thereon, the sea may be calm and quiet. Then the Doge and others were aspersed with holy water, the rest of which was thrown into the sea. The ceremony is celebrated to this day, obviously with the mayor leading the procession instead of a Doge. Having married the sea, the Doge also applied himself to sorting out his son with a marriage to a Byzantine princess for his eldest son, Giovanni. Things went from good to better when, after the death of Otto III, Orsoleo decided to side with his successor, Henry II, against Arduin of Ivrea and his attempt to claim the throne of the Kingdom of Italy. Venice was rewarded for the show of loyalty with the confirmation of all the trading rights, all the while keeping Byzantium happy. So, Pietro II Orsoleo, had sorted things out with the Holy Roman Empire, with the Byzantine Empire, with the Muslims, with the Dalmatian pirates, 
and had sorted out the factions in the city as well as setting things up for his son. What could possibly go wrong? Thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters. This time round we're thanking the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Bill, Ed, Eric W, Jeff, Joshua, Sean and Jimmy. As always, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Silane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Greg, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Roberta, Rodney, there you are, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent. And the tippy-top, super-level Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri, Sen, Paolo, Reactionary Venetian, and Lisa K. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com if you have questions, comments, or just want to say hello, or you're feeling bored, or something like that. At the same URL ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook, so give us a tweet or a post there if you feel like it. Until next time, thanks again to everyone for listening, and arrivederci. Tira Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.